When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wasn't very well written. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hate to break it to you, Joe. That's not a. <laughs> That's not a. You should just, see who they're living. It was just. It was just this. It was like I, you forget there are people out there who think about you for long periods of time that you've never met. I had a. Think you're not a politician. I had a meeting this morning with this, you know, this writer who you know written the pilot and their agent sent it to me and wanted some help with it and whatever. And I sit down. I'm like writing this. And they proceed to go on that they've spent the last three days watching Brotherhood nonstop. And I'm like, would somebody want to watch that? <laughs> it's a good I mean, show. I, I spent five years doing it, it's you know, but that's oh, no, not for anybody. But you have to, you have to take it. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's great. Yeah. People, people watch your stuff, you know? No, like, hey, I'm lucky as hell. They don't make you watch it yourself. It's exactly. Great. You know, I sat down with a wife and we watched, well, God, what is it? The 12 Fists of McCluskey. I had a... <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just, you know, you know, you know, I don't know. Are we recording? I don't know if I should say, because I, I always I, recording. I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, we were, we were there. We've talked about this. I think that, that the, the, uh, masters of horror and mm -hmm. Quentin showed up and it was a few months before the film. Well, it was like six months mm -hmm. before. And, and I remember him and Landis going on forever. And Quentin was just running through, um, what's, what's the character character's name? The Leonardo DiCaprio's mm -hmm. character's IMDb page. <laughs> and it was hilarious. And we're all sitting in the room because they're, they're all perfect. Of course, right. they are. they're exactly the shows that someone like that would have been on and guessed it <laughs> on. And, you know, half the stuff's in the film. But you know he could do this guy's life story. It goes on and on and on. And, you know, then he goes to work with Corbucci. And, and it's, we're so, all but it's howling. also lovingly created. Yeah, no, no, it is. And we're all howling. But I think, like, I think you know, it's like... But I'm sitting there, I'm going, I think half the audience for this film is in this room. <laughs> and I got to say, and I know, it turned out that was even, even for the people who didn't enjoy the film, the fact that that movie was such a hit is so like, I just, it makes me so happy that you could but make it, this so specific movie about such a specific world. And, but and, it, it's one of the things about, you know, having everything at your fingertips is that it removes the temporalness of anything. Yeah. It's like, you know, back in the day, I mean, the movies we're going to talk about, you know, you had to go seek them out. I mean. You know, I was at least, you know, video store. You know, I at least had, right. a, it was a crappy video store in old, the old Melmakoff's on, on 85th Street. But, you know, it was one of those things you could, you could seek them out. Now it's like, if I want to watch Hickey and Bongs or I want to watch Lethal and Weapon, it's the same amount of effort. And it's kind of, they're all just this mush. It's the but you also have to know music. to. That's, you yeah, have to yeah, know but that I, Hickey yeah, and but Bongs his, his point is that the, 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 yeah. the special need, yeah. special aspect of it. The fact that you had to get up and get in your car. Yeah, for sure. Go out and go to a movie and then come back and, you know. And then, okay, it was like, you know, now I can have them on my own home. I can, I right. can have video, you know? Yeah. And, but then the question yeah. is, you know, well, I've got, look at all these videos I've got. Which one will I watch? Yeah. Where, yeah. Whereas it used to be that like a discovery used to be a challenge. Used to oh, be no, a, I always, well, this is why we talk about this all the time. It's why yeah. we do to this find show. find something. Well, one of the things I love about that film is it's kind of doing what we, it's turning a whole bunch of people on. You know, there's a million people there who were yeah. startled to find out after they saw the film that Sharon Tate was real. You know? <laughs> Although I don't know, you know, the fact that there's a bunch of people out discovering the Wrecking Crew might not be the. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think. Have I ever? Have I told the, the my peeping Tom my peeping Tom story? I. Oh please, do tell, do tell. Uh, <laughs> you, you must. You, you must. Tell I was going by Blake's house and he's taking a shower. So <laughs> 
I, I'd heard for years, I was in, in, in like early high school and you'd heard for years about this amazing film, Peeping Tom, that destroyed Michael Powell's career, but it never showed on TV. And it's, you know, pre, if not the earliest days of, you know, VHS, you'd hear about Scorsese going on and on. And I mean, he made, you know, this film sounded unmissable. And I remember ninth grade, 10th grade, it played at the TLA uh, for like one day on a weekday. And I played hooky and I went and I knew because I'd never get a chance to see it again. And I sat through it, I think, three times because it was just like, <laughs> how am I ever going to, you know, I snuck out, I got in trouble, you know, I got caught. But, but. You know, and you know, I mean, you remember that theater? It, it was, you know, this is down in Philly. It was this great repertory theater back in Philly, and and you know, it was this shitty old thirty-five millimeter print that probably broke eighteen times and probably like just desaturated like hell. And I now have, you know, I got the laser disc, and then I got the DVD, and I have two different Blu-rays because they still haven't gotten the transfer quite right, but they're exquisite. And it's like none of them have the weight of going off and and watching that. No, and that may, that begs the question of do people today who are discovering these movies for the first time, yeah. will they ever have the resonance? Well, I think that's actually kind of the point of my whole little maze of titles. I, by the way, we're out of time. Yeah, okay, sorry. that's so fine. I, we won't even introduce you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. <laughs> this is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. We are. We have been toying with the idea of never saying our guests' names. Oh, they have so many ways of finding. I know. Well, the nature of podcast. There's, no one is listening to this who doesn't know that we're we're talking to Blake Masters, the creator of Brotherhood and Falling Water, and uh, the screenwriter of Two Guns, and and so much other. You just finished. Um, well, just finished. It was a while ago, but but the late uh, uh, a few months ago, um, the latest season of Sneaky Pete. You were the showrunner yep. on. Um, uh, any, is it, what am I missing? That's any, any the, the, the critical ones. That's the good stuff. The, the, the best stuff. Um, and, uh, Blake is a great writer and, um, apparently likes movies, I guess. You could say that. Yes. And, uh, is, is our guest. Those, those two things go together. Often. They, they do. <laughs> they do. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and, and Blake is here. Actually, you're kind of, um, plagiarizing another guest, I guess. Uh, uh-huh. that the. <laughs> Well, we didn't. Blake, Blake liked the. He was. He was so. Let me. If I could speak for you for a moment, because you're. Then as, you, as you have been doing as, the entire. <laughs> it's okay. Blake, I'll let him do the podcast. Give, give me the notes. Residuals. Give me the notes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll send you your residual checks. Make sure to leave your address with the girl at the front. Um, uh, I don't remember what I was going to say. Buckets. Uh, buckets. Buckets. Um, uh, Blake was so enthusiastic about coming on. He had twenty-eight different ideas, and and then he said, "Well, like, or I could do what Domian did." And when, James Adomian came in with his buckets of sort of mini lists. So we are, once again, we're going to steal the buckets from James Adomian. Um, but I have an organizing principle. Well, oh, you really, it's an organ, you've organized the buckets. I've organized the buckets under an organizing principle. Well, why don't I let you talk from here on? <laughs> in fact, if, you now, could, if you could see at home. How, I, I, how small his hand was. <laughs> you, you should see this list. We were talking beforehand. It's, it's, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Alan Arkish's amazing uh, uh, work that he did when he came in. You were just staring at this work of art across the table. Um, but yeah, uh, c- carry on because well, obviously no. we have a long show ahead of us. <laughs> well, no, you know, the, the, what we're talking about is the way in which you come to a film and the vibe you bring to it actually is kind of why you love it sometimes. You know, that sometimes our love of a film is completely irrational. 
And it's because of how we saw it, when we saw it, who we saw it with. And there are all these different ways I've irrationally come to love films, some of which are great films and some of which are well, not so great films, are but these, I love are them. Are these called guilty pleasures? No, because I've never, I've never been on board with that particular phrase. I don't find them guilty pleasures. I find them moments of my life that I love. And, you know, just to, I'm just going to launch into one of them. Um, you should. I don't know why I was just flashing. I would, I would imagine that, like, I'm trying to think of who, who. Paul Schrader probably thinks all pleasure is guilty. But beyond that, he's <laughs> well, a, a Calvinist. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you know, um, first uh, film I guess I want to talk about. Just a perfect example. of This is this is a film I was in college and I was wait. Which which bucket is this? This starts in what I call the deep cuts bucket. Uh, okay, you're gonna start with deep cuts. I'm gonna start with deep cuts because it's just a simple example. And you're gonna like, end with satisfaction. Uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is you know I mean we all have you know. Directors, we all are great, and we all know they're famous films, but, you know, like a music fan who, you know, likes that weird third album that proves you're a true fan, there are like <laughs> certain, certain films, you know, that I love by directors I love, and I love actually the deep cut film more than any of the hits. Right. And it's also how you come to them, you know, and this is a case I was, I was in college, and I was driving cross country, and I rolled into East St. Louis, Missouri, into a motel that probably, you know, sold rooms by the hour. And I got into my room. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And they had, a, they had, I believe it was HBO. And I turn on the TV and this movie starts. I'm like, wow, that's really pretty. And the title comes on. And, oh, Vilma Sigmund's the DP. And my God, it's, it's a movie I've never heard of by Steven Spielberg called Sugarland Express. Welfare's come and taken baby Langston forever. They're going to keep him in that foster home. I don't want my baby back. Now, are you going to help me or not? Well, where's he now? Oh, in Sugarland. And I'm like, oh, I'll watch 15 minutes. He's, he's young, Joe. <laughs> I'm very young. This was 1990, 1990, actually. And I stayed up, watched every minute of the thing, and wished I could have watched it five times over because it was so much that I loved in this movie. It was, it was a movie that Spielberg made that didn't have a happy ending. It had all of that beautiful photography of Zygmunt. And you could see tropes he used. If you remember in both in E.T. and Close Encounters, he'd put the bad guys, he'd put their faces in shadow. He was doing it in Sugarland, And this was his second film. It was his first film after Duel. And it's got William Atherton better than he's ever been. It's got Goldie Hawn, fabulous. It's got a great Ben Johnson performance that, I think Clint Eastwood tried to copy when he did a, uh, was it a Better World, Different World? What was the yeah, one he better did? World. Better, better World. world. Yeah. It's like he was playing Ben Johnson in this movie. Um, and it's a really great story of Goldie Hawn breaks her husband out of pre-release prison and kidnaps their child from foster. They're going to go kidnap their child from foster care, end up driving across Texas and kidnapping a, sta a state trooper. And they're chased slow motion across Texas. And it's got one of those great car chase movies. And it's my favorite Spielberg movie. You know, I mean, I don't know what was it like. I'm sure you saw it when it probably first came out. <laughs> I did. Well, I was a big fan of Duel. Yes, I mean, I, I, I as an exercise in pure cinema, I, I prefer the the TV version to the, yeah. to the version where they added more to make it longer for right. the theaters. Uh, but it was it was just a, a, a little gem. I mean, every shot was the right shot in the right place, and it's and it's very technical. There's lots of shots of crankshafts and all you know stuff like that. Uh, but it's just it's a incredible movie and so when when sugarland came out it was like oh this guy finally got a yeah. a real movie yeah and it, i and I, I like sugarland but i didn't like it as much as duel i was sort of uh, i i was sort of gobsmacked by duel and and it really took me a while to realize that that was a 
haiku version of the kind of movies that he was going to end up doing. See, I, I've, for yeah. me, I was so gobsmacked by Sugar because I didn't know it existed. And there's this one moment in the film that just always breaks my heart. William Atherton and Goldie Hunter hiding out for the night in literally a, an RV lot. And they busted into this right. RV and they're watching out the window a drive-in. And they're showing Looney Tunes on the drive-in and it's reflected in the <sighs> glass. And there's this moment where the, I think it's the, the coyote runs off the cliff uh -huh. and they're watching, they're laughing and the coyote hangs in the air and falls. And this look on William Atherton's face as he realizes, oh my God, I'm the coyote about to fall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's this poignant moment of tragedy that is very rare in Spielberg movies. And it's kind of why it's my favorite. You know, I think that goes to sort of something core in me as an audience member. And again, why I love the deep cut has more to do with me than the world. I'm not saying it's a better movie. I'm saying it's my favorite Spielberg mm -hmm. movie. Right, right. You know, and it's the same way that like, I mean, because you could talk deep cuts like for Billy Wilder, I'm an ace in the hole guy. For Fred Zinnemann, I'm an act of violence guy. You know, but for Spielberg, it's like, I love that movie for irrational reasons that have to do with how I saw it, when I saw it. And the fact that that moment so played to kind of how I see the world sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, and that goes to sort of one of my other lists. Next bucket is essentially, you know, I'm somebody who grew up, you know, I was born in 1970. So I grew up really consciously in New York City, in Manhattan between 75 and 85. So when the city was sort of rough and kind of sketchy and beautiful and God, I loved it. And I hated when they, you know, turned Times Square into Disneyland. And even though it's probably much nicer and safer and more economically viable. Well, oh, that. you know, I'm not, to, I was, have, have you, have you seen Uncut Gems yet? I have not. Have you seen, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, some love it, some hate it. I, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, but I'm, I mostly loved it, but uh, it, it does, if you miss New York of a certain time in a certain place, it's like walking down some streets of New York city and getting yelled at for two hours. <laughs> and that either makes you want to see it or not. If it makes you want to see it, you're going to love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, it's, you know, for me, I mean, the bucket I would call this is, this is the New York of my crumb, the crumbling New York of my youth. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and I love these movies and there's so many famous ones that we, you know, like everybody knows them all, you know, and most of these I saw, I saw them all on video, you know, Serpico and dog day and, you know, warriors and, less known wanderers, you know, but it's interesting. There was this movie. It's, I don't even know if it's a good movie. I haven't seen it since I was eight, but I was at the UA East on uh, first Avenue and 84th street. And it would, the, the theater was down in the basement and it was raining out. So these are the old days where there was no pre ticket, no seats or anything like that. You had, you waited in line right. and it was opening weekend for a movie shot in New York, set in New York. And I remember it was raining. So they let us inside. So we were all crammed on the stairwell for, 45 minutes minimum, maybe an hour for the other show to finish and us to file in. And I loved this movie and it was called Hero at Large. Somewhere in the heart of this city, in a small shop closing for the night, a robbery is in progress, but help is on the way. Mind if I drop in? Captain Avenger! John Ritter is Steve Nichols. How about that? Hero at Large. Who are you, J. Edgar Hoover? I'm Captain Avenger. Such a nice boy. He can't fly. Tomorrow I'm leaping over a tall building at a single bound. Wrong guy. I'm expanding. He can't bend steel. I'm in big trouble. Fighting crime is a dirty business. But when there's danger, he can't turn away. You're a crazy man. He dresses up in a comic book suit and goes around doing good deeds. Hold it right there. Don't make another move. If they're going to use real bullets, I think... I'll retire. John Ritter film? Yes. <laughs> okay. And, and Archer. <laughs> okay. And I loved it. It was, again, it, again, I was, what year was it? I, was, yeah, I think I was eight 
Ah, okay. No, it was nine. Sorry, it was 1980. First uh, appearance of... Uh, isn't that a pretty adult movie for an eight-year-old to be going to see? I, there's another movie we're going to get to, which I saw my first R-rated movie at age six. I sort of saw the commercials on TV and convinced my parents to take me. I saw that at the Lowe's Orpheum on 86th Street. Um, and so my parents took me to all kinds of stuff. When I was, uh, I guess it was 12, no, 11, my mother took me to see Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip and then made me take my father, by which point I had memorized half the routines and do them at the dinner table. So, you know, my parents didn't wow. care. Um, but Hero at Large is this, it's a movie that sounds like it was made somewhere in the 80s. The idea is John Hunton Ritter is this sort of out-of-work actor who gets a job well, dressing up at Superman as Superman. Uh, to stand in front of the theater in front of, you know, the opening weekend of the movie. It's not Superman, but it's Superman. And his clothes get stolen out of the ratty Times Square Theater, and he's on the subway train home, and he's wearing the outfit, and he stops a mugging. And he becomes this vigilante sort of accidental superhero, and it makes him feel good. And the movie goes off the rails in the back, because I didn't, I loved it at age nine, but when I sort of actually saw it again in the mid-90s, because I finally was able to track down a VHS copy, um, I realized there's this whole subplot about a corrupt city government. And which was very common in sort of crumbling New York movies of that period. But to me, as nine-year-old self, that experience of waiting in line and seeing places you recognized and that street and trying to figure out where everything was shot. And then here was this idea of, you know, guy becomes a superhero. Well, I'm nine. That's, that's <laughs> what nine-year-olds want to do. You want to be a superhero, especially on the subway where it's mean and nasty. And, you know, I mean, in second grade, they, they had the, you know, this is all the ways you're going to get killed assembly. It's the safety <laughs> assembly where they tell you, you know, like, walk down the middle of the street in the night so nobody jumps out of an alley and kills you. Or if you're on the subway platform, stand by the token booth, so nobody jumps out and kills you. I mean, so it was such a fun fantasy. And it's got a great sort of ending where he actually saves a kid from a burning building then rushes back into the building and the building collapses and everybody thinks he's dead and the vigilante's gone. And in fact, John Ritter's gone on back to his actor life. He's escaped the city, cruel city government. He wanted to arrest him for being a vigilante. <laughs> Do you, do you, can, do, is this one too, uh, do you know the director of this? I, I, I do. Know. I wrote it down. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm also, it's, it's, we may have, uh, yeah, Martin Davidson. Is that a, I'm looking, I'm like, I'm, it's fascinating. He did uh, Lords of Flatbush, uh, Eddie and the Cruisers, lot, lot and lot, lots and lots of TV. I've never seen Hero at Large. I'm, 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 I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell you it's a great movie, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you that to, yeah. to nine year old yeah. me, Sure. I love this movie and I kind of don't want to see it again yeah. because I have such a pure love for it. And the, again, an irrational love based on the experience of the movie. Yeah. But you're never going to be able to recapture that experience. Never. That's exactly. Yeah. And my children, again, going back full circle, our conversation, I'm not sure my children could capture it with any movie because that experience of waiting, right. You know, and the idea of you've seen, all oh. you've seen is like an ad in the paper or a commercial. And you don't know anything about it. And it's there was no e-channel. Yeah. There was no like, you know, pre-release trailers and, you know, announcements on the internet, we're going to release the teaser trailer in two days. You know, you can replicate that. You can make them stand outside and blast, out, blast <laughs> a hose the at them for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the funny thing is Hero at Large was very much of a piece with a whole bunch of movies that I loved. I mean, I saw this movie I'm not going to go into real depth on that was uh, four years later. Um, I saw like an early screening of a movie with a full house in New York, shut in New York, another vigilante, in this case, a vigilante graffiti artist going up against a corrupt city government. Is it Turk 1-8? is taking his story to the people. He asked the authorities for justice. He can't just walk in and see the mayor. Oh, Mr. Mayor, what about my brother? Hey, shut up. But they wouldn't listen. Turk 
is risking his life to make sure that this message is heard. Turn that TV off! Directed by Bob Clark yeah. of yes. Porky's fame. Yeah, yeah well. That, again, I have not seen since I was 14, but I saw it with an absolutely full house. It was a week before the general release. Everybody cheered. It was great. It's got Kim Cattrall and Robert Urich. I, yeah. It's again, probably if I saw it now and had never seen it before, I go, what is this? But again, I bet it's pretty well made. If I if I went back and watched it again, I think I, Peter Boyle's in it. I Robert Culp is in it. Too. Robert Culp, Culp, Culp yeah. is in it. I, I watched the last uh, thirty minutes of it on TV a couple of months ago, and it was kind of interesting. You know, but it was again that feeling of being in New York where the city's out of control, right. and the government is overwhelmed, and this really is. Well, that's all. That's like that's what all those movies taking are. Appella one two three yeah. taking one everything movies, uh, yeah. report to the commissioner. Yeah. You know, old, old New York, old New York when New York uh, was yes. bad and dirty and all across that. Across one hundred and tenth Street, yes, and across a yes. complete yes. distrust of establishment, and you know, and I, I wonder where we got that. Well, <laughs> that's actually one of my other buckets. <laughs> I do, I do love that that they've now recreated that New York uh, with a massive budget digitally on the Deuce, which, which is a good show. But it's just it's so bizarre to watch that, yeah, and and, and wonder if this episode cost as much as Game of Thrones. It's true. Something. There's no other way to replicate it except mm-hmm. you know yeah. that way. Yeah. But I mean, you know, again, and there's so many movies that you just. I, you know, I watch and I watch it for New York, you know, yeah. recently saw actually with you, Josh, we saw uh, eyes of Laura Mars and it was sure. really just about watching, watching the setting or yeah. night of the juggler or yeah. Wolfen or the seven ups. I mean, it's all, they're places that I walked around that, you know, now you can walk around very safely. And back then, not so much, mm. but there was an aliveness to it that I just yeah. loved. Like, like I, deadly I, hero. I've actually never seen Deadly Hero. Have you with with Don Murray in the weird? Do you know the film? He conf- he confuses it with Dark Hero. With Dark, yes. <laughs> right. um, yeah, no, Ivan Naj, Ivan Naji. Ivan Naj, yes. Um, Heidi Fleiss. Yes, that's Tyler right. Moore. But but Don Murray is this incredibly nasty cop. It's just a he's a good actor, Don Murray. Yeah, no, he's still around. But it's got that. Yeah, it's just that one of those vibe. films. There's that whole thing, and I, I, I'm sure there are other movies from that period set in other cities that have a similar vibe. But there, there's something about sort of dank, grimy New York in the '70s mm-hmm. that even if you'd never been there, you knew the film was shot there. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it. You know, I didn't realize it growing up, but I was my first memories are of sort of life beyond my family, the world, are really you know 1974 and beyond, which means. I am really somebody who grew up right on the cusp of post-Watergate. Right. And again, it wasn't until I'd written a whole lot of scripts and everything else, I discovered that there's a fundamental worldview I sort of carry in all my art, which is a post-Watergate cynicism that you can't trust anything. You're going to be disappointed. It's going to let you down. And like leads to sort of, you know, my next, as that post-Watergate kid, I sort of have this natural distrust of anything pure and a natural cynicism. Or as I put it, why Bob Dylan makes better films than Sid Field. Because in Sid Field, you're supposed to be happy and it's a three-act structure and all that. And Bob Dylan's like, there's nothing pure. There's nothing that is 100% anything. There's Sorry, all- Bob Dylan? Yes, Bob Dylan. Not as a filmmaker. Oh, okay. I was going to say, Ronaldo, have you seen Ronaldo and Clara? No, but the <laughs> fundamental idea that Dylan has in his art is yes. this idea that there's no absolutes in anything. That there's yes. always that turn. There's <clears throat> always that little undercut of something. And so, so many of my favorite films, the lead character doesn't quite get what they want in the end. You know, and they're my favorites and I love them. Maybe I love them irrationally. I also think they're some of the greatest films ever made, you know, but so I went, tried to go sort of deep into sort of some of the lesser known ones. One of my favorites, I think was discussed a little bit before some Michael Ritchie film called Downhill Racer. Oh yeah. Which I adore. Um, 
first off, there's so many things I adore about it. I adore sort of the, the, the verite filmmaking in it. You know, it feels almost documentary. It's a Gene Hackman performance that's ridiculously good. Redford being kind of a not nice guy. You know, it's it's a little, uh, what's the uh, big house and little fallsy? Yeah, a little house, little. Where yes. Redford's <laughs> trying to do, you know, what Paul Newman did in HUD and play kind of an unlikable character, but he's Robert Redford, so he's kind of likable. But he's this guy who's questing to be, you know, to win the Olympic downhill. And there's this great moment. He sort of, everything in his life is focused on this moment and he wins and he gets down to the bottom of the and he's, he's in first place. And it just seems like he's won. And then up at the top of the hill, this unknown guy starts coming down the hill. And his times are fast and faster. And you're like, oh, sh- oh shit, Redford's going to lose. And you can see it on Redford's face. My God. And then the guy wipes out and Redford wins, but realizes, did I? Should I? And it's this moment of, what was it all worth? You know, I went on this quest. What did it cost me? It, again, it's that post-Watergate. What does it all mean? I what does it all mean? Well, that's well it's everyone, everyone it, forgets too. Yeah, it's, it's, we all remember Rocky. Well, yeah. yeah. No, I think we, I've talked actually, there was a, the Bob Carey uh, running for president, not, not, not John years ago. Yes. And, and uh, he would play the theme to Rocky at his rallies. <laughs> and someone asked why he played it. He says, it's the theme of my favorite movie. And it's like, that's going to be the story of my campaign. And. I remember thinking, I know how my favorite movie ends, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, to everyone lose. forgets too that. I mean, you know, a lot of people forget how dark Saturday Night Fever is. I, I would, oh, yeah. I had forgotten though that he actually loses or no, he, he, he wins, wins, but he should have, but lost. he knows he should have lost. Yeah. Which is even exactly more kind of, uh, and, and then gives the prize away. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, Mike Ritchie did the same ending with the candidate, which yeah. again is one of, it's probably one of my two or three favorite endings is. Yeah. Redford, you know, mortgages his soul to win this Senate seat and he's won and everybody's cheering him and he pulls Peter Boyle into the side room and goes, what do we do now? Now what? Because <laughs> he sold his soul. Yeah. But he won. Again, it, and there's something about that turn. And I think it is that I grew up in New York City that was dangerous and falling apart and the city services weren't there. And the idea that there was this sort of distrust and this malaise and Vietnam had been lost and Nixon had, we'd gotten rid of Nixon, but not really. Hell, he came back in the shape of Reagan a bunch of years later, you know, and there's something in that idea that you don't trust the happy endings. Yeah. And like, so I wrote but down- you, you grew up at ground zero of that. I mean, that, that is yeah. where, that is the era I feel like where, where America- Exactly. Kind of You know what Orson Welles said about happy endings? They depend on where you stop your story. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Exactly. By the well, way, the, we talk about Ed Wood all the time. I mean, if that movie had gone on for 10 more minutes, you'd want to kill yourself, you know? <laughs> but- well, you know, it leads to just sort of another movie that I love that's that same kind of dark ending, uh, which is uh, 1965, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, is that depressing ending. Oh, it's so I mean, beautiful. It's beautiful. No, word, I'm with you. The word bleak came into my yeah. head. <laughs> but it's, it's actually the second Martin Ritt movie I've mentioned, you know, the other one being HUD. Yeah. But it is, it is so pure. And I, the number of times I've sat and looked at the geometry of that plot and as a writer, just figuring out the elegant simplicity of the story, of the spy story, um, which is, if you don't know it, essentially is Richard Burton is sent undercover to discredit this guy inside East German intelligence. Um, they then, some the British intelligence then sends a guy in to discredit Richard Burton. And Richard Burton realizes the guy he's been sent to discredit as a British spy actually is a British spy. And they've discredited him to make that guy appear pure. Right. And Richard Burton essentially goes, I can't work for these people and basically refuses to climb over the wall and these German guards shoot him. Um, 
but the black and white photography of that yeah. is just spectacular and the performance and it's like Richard Burton was great and everything but that especially it was so um the sense of world weariness and but and the guy who thinks he can't be betrayed being betrayed well, it's one of the few films where um it was made at that time when when you know, right, clearly it was a choice to make it in black and white and uh that that choice is so perfect for that film yeah it's there's there's not an ounce of it based on a nostalgic love for the look of it it is it is a movie that needs to be gray yes very much so. yeah i don't remember who the dp is do you remember offhand uh because i keep thinking it, it's not james long how did hud which was martin no, i don't think movie. it's not it's it's not be a good probably a british guy yeah uh, and here we'll make ourselves look smart oh please make us look smart uh you know so when he cuts this you see you ask the question and then we answer it correctly <laughs> it's oswald morris you can have this ozzy morris <laughs> there we go a lot is he a, i don't know i don't know oh he's great oswald yeah. morris great you know speaking of black and white movies another one on my list here is of course sweet smell of success yes where you know tony curtis actually finds his soul but gets the crap beaten out of him and loses everything again it's an ambiguous ending i seem to like these movies you know uh you know hud which we mentioned before is also black and white and gorgeous and i have to sub Subtweet here just how much I love Patricia Neal in that movie. It's she's so sexy in that movie. Um, I love her in everything, but that movie, especially, you know, I was God, I think I was like 13 when I rented that one from the video store. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know who that older woman is, but <laughs> I know I like it. <laughs> um, no, she had a you know, not a huge number of starring roles, but God, she was great in all of them. No, you know, Fountainhead, seen that? Fountainhead is terrific. That's where she was having an affair with uh, with Gary Cooper. So, the, yes, it's, there's a lot of real. I don't think she had an affair with uh, Andy Griffith and facing the crowd though, where she's great in as well, but she was fantastic. Um, I don't know. Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid is on this list just to prove I'm not just strictly seventies Miller's crossing. That will Pat Garrett. Let's, let's, uh, Oh, we can wait. Yes. (laughs) No, I want to, cause I, that, that's one that, but which version? Yeah. Oh God. The version, the version with knocking on heaven's door lyrics or the version without, because the version without is actually apparently the, the, the preferred version. Yeah. What's, oh, I saw the movie with the, with the song. With the song. And it was, I, I knew the movie was screwed up because I had read, been reading about yeah. it. But, uh, but that scene was just incredibly moving. And it's still good with just the music because the music is great. It's a really terrific score. Yeah. But I think the, 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 the combination of the lyrics and the visuals in that scene are just a, a high point, a peck and high point. There's a lot I'm of high points. I'm trying to remember which, which version, because there isn't distinct difference and i it's one of those ways that i've come around to over the years kind of well there's so many different versions it's it's but the the one i think the one with the the, does have the wraparound the wraparound is is the is the preferred that's the preferred version yeah but that doesn't have the lyrics i believe no yeah which which um but i i that that one of those things where you just have to take the various versions at home and go on your computer and make up your own but it's still no (laughs) blu-ray which makes me crazy but but it is one of those things where you slowly realized it took me a long time to figure out because you don't think of you know you tell me you tell me the new terrence malick film is a tone poem i'm like yeah well of course it fucking is but but uh i, I just it took me a long time to get that peckinpah was was at least had it in him to be a well, poet no that film is, ballad of cable hogue is yeah is also yeah, yeah, the yeah. same thing but i mean the, the, this this is a movie where the 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 death of the West is, is portrayed through the death of character actors. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I think it, it's, again, it's, it's a movie that if you were to be academic about it, you say, it's a flawed movie. They've never had a definitive version. I think I irrationally love this movie, even though I could, oh, I could, I could name a, 
half dozen other Pac-Man movies that are quote more successful at mm-hmm. what they're trying to do. Yeah, okay. but but I I love so many moments in it. Yeah. The very first scene is so well written, which is if you don't know the movie, you know, Pat Garrett used to run with Billy the Kid. He is basically getting old, so he's taken a job to be the <clears throat> marshal of the county, and his first job is to tell Billy the Kid to get out of the county. So he comes to the bar in the very first scene and says, you got to leave in two weeks or I have to come and hunt you down. And, you know, Billy the Kid, because she says, you got old and they have this scene and um, James Colburn, who's playing back out, leaves and they say to, you know, Chris Christopherson, who's so magnetic in the part, you know, he says, why don't you just shoot him? He goes, why should I? He's my friend. (laughs) (laughs) And he spends the rest of the movie chasing each other. Yeah. And there's so many great scenes and it's just so many moments that I wish I had written. I mean, there's a great scene in the middle where it doesn't have anything to do with the plot of the movie, but James Colburn is sitting by the side of a river. Ah, by the side, yes, the river. It is just, and he's there, and there's this guy on a raft with a kid floating down the river, and the guy has thrown a bottle ahead of him, and he's he's practicing shooting at the bottle. And James Colburn sort of sees, oh, this would be fun, and he takes his rifle out, and he shoots at the bottle and hits the bottle. And the guy on the raft goes, oh, fuck, somebody's shooting, and he turns and points his gun at James Colburn, James Colburn points his gun at the guy, and they're about to freaking kill each other over nothing <laughs> and James Colburn lifts his rifle and the guy lifts his rifle and they don't but you realize just how stupid violence is yeah and how stupid and from a guy who was a violence merchant like Peck and Paul who loved the orgy of it and loved the cinematic orgy of it it was such a beautiful concise statement about violence and the randomness of it and toxic masculinity and so many other things and here it is just this moment in the film and, and then, but that same film still contains, I mean, I, I agree entirely. And then Chris Christopherson fills a shotgun full of nickels and kills a guy and goes, keep the change, Bob, which is one of the greatest action movie kill lines of all time. But he didn't fill the rifle. The other guy filled the <laughs> well, rifle. Well, the he other guy, filled yes, with you're right. That's right. Dodge. That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. That picture, when it uh, when it opened, uh, it, the, 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 the TV spots and the trailers had all these scenes that weren't in the movie anymore. <laughs> because it right. was cut so late after right. before the release that here's and Barry Sullivan as Chisholm. <laughs> no character. There's no character in the movie at all. Uh, depends know? on which cut you go. Because well, in the original theatrical yeah. cut of the movie, I mean, it was all this stuff that you were talking about was was gone. Yeah, you know, and um, and supposedly the story was that that Pack and Paw's editors had secreted out a rough cut mm. of the movie, uh, and that that James Aubrey, the guy at MGM who cut the movie had reconstituted the movie through by using other takes now I, i've never oh, actually wow. compared the various oh versions to wow see if that's true or not um, but it's a it's a it's a subject for further study yeah. and i think there's a whole yeah. book um i don't oh. know if it's by paul sador or who it is but it, it, it is it's a whole book about, about the making the, of, of pat garrett and billy the kid yeah you could do hours on pat garrett i mean the slim pickens part you know someday oh. i'm not gonna float out of this no hat county i think it is yeah. uh it's just so great I actually, I have to admit that I cribbed an homage to this movie in Two Guns, where at the at the beginning of the movie, Chris Christopherson and his buddies are have basically buried these chickens up to their heads, and they're just practicing target practice, shooting at the chickens. Well, in the very first scene of Two Guns, I buried, I wrote it, you know, chickens buried up to his head, and uh, these guys are shooting and missing, and uh, Mark Wahlberg's character comes up and you know gets very upset that they're being mean to the chickens because, and, and somebody points out that Mark Wahlberg's eating chicken, so he kills the chickens just to sort of put them out of their misery, and. What was amazing is when Two Guns got reviewed, there was 
two reviewers who noted that we'd been cruel to animals, but not a single reviewer noticed we'd blatantly ripped off Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, <laughs> which said everything to me about modern film criticism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does. Um, I got to, I got to just walk. It's, it's a lovely. I got to meet Jim Keltner once, and and uh, our friend brought up. Um, you know, he plays drums on on that record and that soundtrack. And he said that the first time he ever heard "Knocking on Heaven's Door" was when he was playing drums to it to picture for the film, and he had tears streaming down his face <laughs> as he was playing it. It's and Bob Dylan comes back into our podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's Although a, it's always a thread. Yeah, <laughs> we, we 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 someday someday. Dylan is everywhere at all times. He is all. No, I, mean, I, want, I want Dylan to come on our podcast. <laughs> Love I, to hear him talk about movies. He <clears throat> probably has something he saw back in Hibbing when he was like 12. You yeah. never know. Or maybe he's a Michael Bay fan, you know? <clears throat> it's the great thing is you he's don't know. He's a baseball know. fan, apparently. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he boxes. So mm -hmm. he likes Pride of the Yankees. Huh? <laughs> no, he's more of a major league guy. <laughs> There's another movie which had the, be thing. the best joke in the movie was in the trailer, but not the movie. Which oh, is the, the the famous line in the commercial is you know that wouldn't have been out of many parks and and he goes name yes. one and he goes Yellowstone and that was in every commercial and it's not in the movie. It's not in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Another, just sort of going to, I don't know, another bucket, which I love, which is, again, in the same way we love deep cuts, it's like we love movies that we get to proselytize for. I mean, there are movies out there that I've seen where I was probably one of five people who saw it, and I love it. I love it, and I love it irrationally more because I'm one of the five people who saw it, and I tell everybody how great it is. And the truth is, it's great to me because I'm one of those five people, and so it's actual value to somebody else. Who knows? <laughs> but I adore these movies. These movies, and as a result, whenever they come on, you know, I come across them on cable, I have all the DVDs, I'll occasionally pull them out, I'll sometimes put them on like a... When I'm writing, I'll put it on the TV in my office with the sound off and just loop it. And they're beautiful movies. And the first one I want to sort of proselytize for is a Michael Winterbottom movie called The Claim. You're from the railroad. I'm the chief engineer of the Central Pacific Survey Party. I'm here to see Mr. Dillon. He didn't say anything about bringing family. Well, they're not my family, but you can take their bags just the same. Kingdom Come needs a railroad. Everyone needs the railroad. The nation needs it. How do we get a railroad up here? We'd have to knock down the mountain. Maybe that's what we'll do. Oh, yeah, with um, the, the uh, hang on, Peter hang on, the kid from um, American Beauty. Wes Bentley. Yes. Wes Bentley, yes. It is the yes. best Wes Bentley performance. <clears throat> it is a spectacular Mila Jovovich performance. Um, it is Sarah Polly, who, God, I adore in everything yeah. she's ever done. Yes. Um, it's Michael Winterbottom. It's Peter Mullen being Peter Mullen, which you can't go wrong. It is a retelling of the mayor of Casterbridge up in the Sierra Nevadas. It is an immensely Beautiful movie. There's clear McCabe and Mrs. Miller inspiration. And I just irrationally love it. Um, I find it beautiful and moving. And again, it's a tragedy, <laughs> as it is. Is uh, you know, There's this great uh, metaphor within the whole thing that Peter Mullen builds Mila Jovovich a house. And there's this scene where he has the house moved because the mine and the town are moving because one mine's played out and they're moving to the other. 
And literally there's a scene where this giant team of about 18 horses pull the house down the road. And in the end, the house burns up. It's, you know, again, lots of McCabe and Mrs. Miller here. And you're a McCabe fan because of the way you saw McCabe. I'm a fan of this because of the way I was one of three people in the theater. I believe it was a coronet next to Bloomingdale's in New York. Yeah, every movie, I know where I saw it because that's part of the experience. Sure. Um, but you know, your McCabe story is fantastic. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, a, I, I actually, McCabe mystified me. I mean, I was a child when I saw it. It's what, what I love about it is when I went back as an adult and this, this movie that had confounded and bored and frightened me so much <laughs> is so goddamn good, you know, yeah. but, but that is not a film to show whatever I was, a nine-year-old. There's no. <laughs> my parents, I remember my parents, I was about, it must've been whenever it came out, but I remember seeing my brilliant career, which was, uh, mm-hmm. uh is that Jim Campion? Jillian Armstrong. Yeah. So my parents, I was, uh, whatever year it came out, they took me to see my brilliant career, the, the Jillian Armstrong movie. And I saw it at the Paris, uh, next to the plaza. Still, which is still around. Thank God. <laughs> Though not for long. I heard that it had been bought. Um, but I was completely mystified and right. did not get it. And I was nine or 10 or 11 or something like that. And it's just, it's not a movie for that. But yeah. there is value to taking your children to age-inappropriate movies. There is. Look, I, I, he drives me nuts. He's a monstrous presence on, on, on the, the, the national scene and a blight. And slowly but surely, people are coming around to it. And if he comes on next week, I'll love to have him. Um, but Bill Maher has, has a line that he, years ago, he said that, that as a kid, he was, uh, you know, there weren't that many children's films and he would be forced to go to adult films, which forced you to come to them, which forced you to challenge yourself to understand them. And, and now you're sort of living in this time where everything is geared much yeah. younger, where you have to kind of stoop to have a good time. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I, I hate his curmudgeonliness, but I, I do think that's had an impact on something more than just the quality of movies. Well, I think it, it those, you know, for lack of a better, the age inappropriate movies, it makes better artists. Yeah. Cause it means you struggle with material when you're young and you're trying to figure out as an artist, you know, what's my, what's the world? How does the world work? Yeah. And these movies, they tell us stories to let us understand the universe. And if all our stories are nice, happy, go lucky, where the good guys went in the third act after looking dead at the end of the second act as Sid Field would have us do it, it's really boring and it's not true. There's nothing left to think about. I mean, that was the thing is walking out of a movie like McCabe and Mrs. Miller mystified while, you know, my, my dad and his friends are going, oh my God, and been going to see it again the next fucking week. Like <laughs> clearly there is something about being an adult that I don't understand. And if I understand this film, right. I will be an adult. But more than that, I think, I think art prepares us for life. And I think if life isn't tidy and neat and right. all those things, and I think actually, again, maybe it's just my generational period. I'm Gen X, very clearly. I'm a natural cynic. But it, you need art to wrestle with the world, you know? And that's why so many movies, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed by because they're not challenging their audience. They're not challenging me. They're not, they're not helping me understand the world. They're telling me, they're telling me something that I, you know, I already know isn't true. Right. It's like the difference when I drive in the car and play music with my kids, the difference between their songs and my songs isn't whether the, the quality of the pop hook. It's that the lyrics in their songs are, everything's great. I love you. And the lyrics of mine are, I may love you, but this isn't going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think my songs are probably more right. <laughs> um, well, they'll come to realize. Like, yeah, they no, will. It's, and it's, they're, it's, they're, they're, you know, they're 11 and 9, so they're allowed at that age. But and I bet a bunch of their songs are about how sad I am that you don't love me anymore, too. There is that to, to pop songs. Not so much. There's a reassuring. <clears throat> That's country music. That's why, yeah. <laughs> but there's a reassuring nature to the music that they like. Right. And I think, you know, you could say, you know, that art that is designed to reassure is, has basically overwhelmed art that is designed to, to provoke. Right. Mm -hmm. And make us feel uneasy. And yet, you know, the television we had, you know, 10 years ago with, you know, Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Madden was designed to be that same uneasy thing. And we love it. Right. And maybe that's my generation getting their turn at the, uh, at the wheel. But again, I'm going to go back to movies that deserve better tape because I'm going to go back to that bucket. Because <laughs> I, there's another movie that was an uneasy movie that I loved mostly because I loved the New York photography again. This was year 2000, which was The Yards, which was shot by Harris Savides, which was... Again, it felt like New York. The colors were right. The saturation was, was right. And Harris was such a brilliant cinematographer. Um, I never met him. I used one of those people who was always on one of those lists of, my God, if I could ever work with that guy. But that, that movie is so beautiful. And it was a very clearly personal story for James Gray um, based on his father, who I think believe had gone to jail. And um, his sense of place and the sense of the reality of that place and of the subway trains. Because the yards refers to the New York uh, subway uh, yards where the Mark Wahlberg gets involved in the corruption of the city contracts and all of that. But it captured both the beauty and in the grime of that city and the, the greens and browns. One of the things is people think New York's a gray city. New York isn't a gray city. It's a brown city. Yeah. They're brown stones, you know? Um, and it just, it, you know, it's this Shakespearean story. And I could argue with you, you know, the ending feels a little forced and it's a little, little ham-handed. I don't care because again, I irrationally love that movie because I was one of five people to see it. It is a movie where James Gray got into a fight with Harvey Weinstein about the final cut. And Harvey Weinstein said, you can have your cut because it's in your contract. You're going to get no ads, no support. And I'm going to bury this thing. Well, I found it. I love it. It's so gorgeous. Go see it. If only to stick your nose, your finger in Harvey Weinstein's eye and to rehabilitate. Um, I find James Gray to be a filmmaker who I always, I'm always interested in his work. Even if, yeah. even when I don't love the film. Yep. He's a director who should be up there with yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, mm -hmm. you know, and those guys who make interesting, compelling. No, I'd, I'd rather drama. watch him miss the mark than, yeah. you know, Avengers Endgame. Exactly. exactly. Not that that's not cinema. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's another movie that I proselytized for just to prove that I'm not all about tragedy. Here's this uh, third movie that, you know, again, uh, this is 2003. Another movie I saw, God, I think I was on one of the theaters on second Avenue for this one. Um, and it's a film that got very little love, but I kind of love the experience of seeing it probably, probably to do with the girl I was seeing at the time, uh, a film called down with love. Hey baby. I just uh, popped by for a little sex on a car. Catcher block gets anything he wants. Do you look for me? Barbara Novak. Here's to Bannerhouse's new number one author. Has everything she needs. And it's all in my book. Down with love, not sex. My book instructs women that love is a distraction. That book is ruining my life. All our wives are giving us trouble. You have to solve this, catch. Squasher! All women want love and marriage. I'm going to write the expose of the century. And I am going to make Novak fall in love. Wow! 
You've never heard of my book, Down With Love? No, ma'am, I, I have not. Fly me to the moon. Which was an ode to Pillow Talk and oh, all those yeah. Rock Hudson Doris Day um, movies. Stars Renee Zellweger, right. you, uh, Ewan McGregor. Isn't it Peyton Reed? Yes, it is Peyton yes. Reed. And <clears throat> it is so spot Very accurately on. observed, too. Oh, yes. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. Sarah Paulson. It's the first time I really recognized Sarah Paulson as being spectacular. And she plays the best friend in this and is spectacular. And the costume design alone is just great. There's this one moment where uh, they're wearing like this plaid outfit and she opens, I think it's, I think it's uh, Sarah Paul's character opens sort of the cape wrap she's wearing and the lining matches her dress. It's like, <laughs> it's so perfectly kitsch and it so loves those movies. And it, it'll make you go back and watch all Pillow yeah. Talk and all of those movies <clears throat> and everything you love about them. But it's sort of strangely subversive. And it's a movie that I think... I don't know. It connected with me, but then again, I knew those movies. I knew all the references. If you were trying to go to sort of see, oh, it's a Renee Zellweger romantic comedy, it didn't connect with you somehow. But it's so much better than those movies. And I don't know why it didn't get a better fate, but it's another movie that I adore irrationally and I think more people should know about. It's That's all we're here for. Yeah, no, exactly. It's funny when you say that. I think of too. It's it's another sort of uh, not not as uh, funny pastiche, but far from heaven has that same kind of mm -hmm. uh, you know just a, a beautifully realized, meticulous recreation of a genre that probably ninety eight percent of the audience is going to go see. It doesn't even know exists. But the difference, though, <clears throat> I think, is the that far from heaven loves those movies and is very reverential from those movies. There's a bit of down love that loves it, but is also able to point out what's absurd. Well, you have and actually, to, yeah, and, but, and, and own the absurdity and in a way sort of actually have something new to say about right. those movies in a way that Far From Heaven was just a recreation of. Well, kind of, except for being a little more overt with some of the elements, but also you have to, you know, Cirque was already a pretty savage commentator on America, so it's hard to. Right, and it, the, it just sort of takes the the homosexual subtext and brings it to the surface. A little bit more, yeah, <laughs> and then, but just, but just, none of the, but, uh, but um, yeah, another one you're talking about is, is, is those films do have a kind of, uh, they're not as knowing. So, yes. So they're, they're ripe for, Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I love that. Um, then I just want to go to a, well, one of my other buckets, just because I'm here. Um, <laughs> is there are those movies that we saw very, I saw very young. I don't remember the whole movie, but there are moments that sort of were indelibly imbued on my little brain and I misremembered them, which I, and they're fascinating. When I was, I talked about it, the first R rated movie I saw, I was six. I'd seen an ad on television. I said, I want to go see that. My friends were like, mm. I talked them into it. We went to the Lowe's Orpheum. We were in the number one theater. Was, uh, we saw that. And there was a scene in it that I always remembered. It was a torture scene. There were these two guys on bunk beds. And they're trying to get the nuclear codes out of the guy on the, on the top bunk. And what they do is they go to the guy on the bottom bunk, put their hand over his mouth. And they stab a screwdriver into his clavicle. And he howls like mad. And the guy on the top bunk is freaking out. And they go to the guy on the top bunk. We're plucking out his eyeball with a screwdriver. And he freaks out and gives up the nuclear codes. And this is my memory of it. And it's this horrific torture scene. And when I first got to Hollywood in the early 90s and I was writing action screenplays, I wrote that torture scene like eight times a version sure. of it. Guy in a chair, you hear and your imagination is worse than what they're actually doing. And right. you always cave and you give up. I didn't even know the name of the movie for years. I didn't remember it. I was like, I didn't know the name. I knew the scene. I knew it was indelible. And I remembered the end of the movie, which was... It was, it involved a point where like the president got involved and they've kidnapped, gone into a nuclear silo and they're going to launch missiles and they end up, uh, the president ends up showing up and the kidnappers are there and they end up 
circling around the presence. They're trying to get to the escape plane and the snipers come in and they shoot and they shoot the two, the two kidnappers who are trying to launch the nuclear missiles and they kill the president too. And it was to my six-year-old mind, this was like the most amazing, <laughs> intense, <laughs> messed up movie. My God, they killed the president. And I didn't remember the title until I was, um, I was working as an intern at the time. Uh, and I ran into, I was working for Sam Raimi at the time as the unpaid intern reading scripts. And I was at the Christmas party and I was talking to the guy who wrote Time Cop, Mark Ryden. And I told him about this movie. I remember he goes, oh, it's called Twilight's Last Gleaming. And I was like, okay. And I tried to track it down. It was out of print. You couldn't uh. see it anywhere. And I finally, a couple of years later, tracked down a scratchy VHS copy. And it's, it's not great. It's, <laughs> it's got it's, weird split screen stuff that's kind way, of interesting. It's way long. It's way uh, long. Yeah. It's, a, it's an agitprob piece because what it turns out is the guys who break into the nuclear missile silo and are threatening to launch nuclear missiles, they want the president to reveal the truth about Agent Orange. It's a polemic. It's not Aldrich's best work. I love Aldrich. You know, I love Longest Yard. Um, but in my brain, that scene, and then the scene yeah. came up and it's so way tamer. Yeah. And it's just, it's not a very interesting yeah, scene. Yeah, but you're not the same person. And that's kind of the whole point, which is <laughs> our love for movies is irrational. It's about the time and place we saw them and the yeah. age we were. And they can capture your imagination. I mean, I had the same experience actually of all movies with Snow White, which I saw as a very young child. And there's the scene where the Wicked Queen goes down the spiral staircase into her lair. And in my four-year-old brain, she goes down the spiral staircase and down and down and down. And the music plays and it goes on forever. And she finally gets down to her lair and turns herself into, you know, the ragged old crone. Well, I was in high school and I was trying to impress this girl. And I was in boarding school at the time. And the theater in town was uh, at the Ioka was showing uh, Snow White. And to prove that I sort of was, you know, touchy-feely guy, I said, let's go see Snow White. And the moment comes that I'm about to tell her, this is this amazing scene where she goes down and down and down into the <laughs> bowels of hell. And she just kind of goes around once. <laughs> It's this brief, you know, five-second clip, but my four-year-old brain oh, remembered yeah. it seeing it in the Capitol Theater in Pittsfield, Massachusetts well, this way. Forget, forget your four-year-old brain. I think I've told you this story. My, my, my grandmother, I remember uh, watching, you know, whose favorite movie was Brute Force. <laughs> and I think I, I mentioned, you know, I showed her Alien once because I thought, oh, this will get her. She loved horror films and was always bagging on how contemporary horror films are terrible. And she, she thought it was all right, but too talky. Alien. But I remember watching Dirty Harry with her once. I was on TV. And so what she was asserting, I didn't see it in a movie theater until many years later. I'd seen it on TV a bunch of times. She was positive they had cut out the scene where Harry shoots a guy, a naked guy running down the street with a knife in his hand, chasing a woman. Which, of course, is just this, you know, he's called in and he shot a guy for, you know, attempted rape. And they're like, how do you know it's attempted rape? He's like, when I see a guy with a knife in one hand and a heart on in the other, or whatever the line is. And my grandmother, who had to be in her 50s, or no, she, she was born in 1900, who was 72 when she saw, 71, when she saw Dirty Harry, had created the scene but in that her happens, mind. That happens frequently. It happens yeah. in, in persona. There's, there's a story that the woman tells about yes. that, that sex on the beach. Well, the <clears throat> second time I saw the movie, I kept waiting for that scene. For that scene to come Because back. it was so, it, it was yeah. so indelible. I had, I yeah. had pictured it. So, and it, it's, but it was never in the movie. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm just saying. It's not just six-year-olds who do this. Oh, no. But it's it's one of those ways in which we, you know, we come to love the movies we love. You know, it's, um, you know, one of the, I got like two buckets left, I think, that we can go through. Got 50 movies. I thought, no, wait, was that one? Are you, 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 you had one you couldn't remember the title. I do. This is, I was going to finish with that. I was going to finish with that. Okay, great. Um, We're going to stop Joe. It's all planned. Yeah, clearly. Yes, I, I brought a, I brought, there is a movie. He's a showrunner. He's running, he's running the show. I know, I know. I feel used. One of the other things, 
ways in which we come to movies is there's movies we don't plan to watch in the old days. Now you plan to watch every movie you watch. But I remember being sick when I was 11, 12. We just got HBO. And there are certain movies that were just on Beastmaster. all the time. And you would watch them over and over again. And they're movies that actually had a lot of subtlety to their humor and things like that that you end up falling in love with. Not the first time you see them, but because you've watched it three right. times and caught different pieces of it. And one of them I actually just recently saw, thanks to you, Josh, which is Local Hero. There is a place where the northern lights transform the sky. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. Modern mermaids spring from the sea. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. The land breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And all who witness its wonders come to believe in its magic. What about the sky? Sky, sir, is amazing. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. This is the new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire, Local Hero. Survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north, through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Ah. Which ah. is such a beautiful, small movie. And again, it's one of those, I, I proselytize for it. I, could, I wish I could turn everybody onto this movie. It is Peter Riegert as he's never been better. It's Peter Capaldi, your Doctor Who, except he's about 18. Yeah. There's this beautiful small town in Scotland where these oil executives come to town to buy the town and turn it into a refinery. And they're going to destroy this beautiful, loving, weird, quirky small town and make everybody really rich, yeah. but destroy this thing. And Peter Rear comes in as kind of the heartless, all business, Texas oil executive who falls in love with the place. Yeah. And his boss in the end, Burt Lancaster, and there's a whole Burt Lancaster subplot with his therapist that's hilarious, um, flies in at the end and declares he's going to buy the town, but he's not going to turn it into an oil refinery. He's not going to destroy it. And he sends Peter Riegert back on the helicopter, first plane back to Houston. Peter Riegert, he's made the people rich. The town's been saved, but he's exiled. And he goes back to Texas, and this Mark Knopfler guitar solo oh, kicks in. Loneliest last shot. Exactly. And he's there in his apartment, and he calls back to the one telephone box in the town just to hear the phone ring. And the last shot is this beautiful little town, the little red phone box, and the phone is ringing, and it just breaks your heart because he's been exiled from Eden. Again, uh, I, I have a certain fetish for movies that don't end up happy. Which, by the way, that that one is, is well, it does and it doesn't. You know, I, I, I actually think that's a very happy ending because it's, it's, he's, he's found a humanity he never yeah. knew he didn't have and the but town is saved. But he's lost it. But, but, but he'll go back. He can will he? Back. I, well, I don't think he will. Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm, I think I'm he's going to go on. I think he's going to go on with a broken heart. That's a guy with a broken heart yeah. that's never going to heal because he's actually, he's eaten from the tree of knowledge. He's eaten from that moment of right. beauty and love and warmth and humor. There's life beyond his portion, his apartment and telexing the next deal. Yeah. And yeah, he tries to give it all away at one point. So yes. To the landlord at the bar. <laughs> yeah. He offers to like, the wife will have to stay, of course. <laughs> yeah. You get my apartment, my car. It's a lovely, there's a new Criterion Blu-ray out that looks absolutely oh, it's, gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous. And I remember seeing the movie and liking it the first time I saw it, but it was on HBO constantly. 
And so I must have watched it five or six times to the point I knew every line. And the jokes, it doesn't ask, the jokes don't ask for the joke. So they're very subtle and quiet. And it's one of those movies, it's, again, it's like um, you often say about Coen Brothers movies, is the more times you watch them, the more you love them. You know, and that's a movie, please watch it, watch it again. There's another movie I haven't seen in this category that I probably haven't seen since about 1985, but I remember watching it and being, eh, and then having been forced to watch it three or four times because I had, you know, I was sick a lot as a kid. And so I watched it over and over again, which was Paul Mazursky's Tempest, hmm. really? which is a very late, I think it's Cassavetti's last wow, acting I've performance. Never seen it. It's Raul Julia is playing the Caliban character. It's got a very young Molly Ringwald. It's about 1982. Uh, Jenna Rollins. I don't know if it's good, but in my brain, I like it. It's Nova Pickle. <laughs> <laughs> it is this, you know, it's uh, Cassavetes plays an architect who's sort of had it with modern society and takes his family to this Greek isle. And, um, and I just remember being, with repeated watchings, there are subtleties in performance of Cassavetes, of Rollins, of Raul Julia that I remember really loving. I don't know if I, will st if I would love the movie if I saw it today. But because it was on HBO all the time, unexpected, it was not a movie aimed at my demographic. I mean, it wasn't exactly, you know, Ghostbusters. Um, but I have this real affection for it. And it's, again, it's not rational. It's not based even on the quality of the movie. It's based on the fact I sat through it six times on HBO because I was home with bad allergies and the flu and bronchitis. But it's a movie that had moments in it that I remember. There's a scene at the beginning before he leaves for Greece where there's, He's in some ballroom and there's confetti coming down. And again, I don't know if he actually does. It's kind of like Twilight's Last Gleaming thing. But those are the movies that we love irrationally. And because love isn't rational, you know, there's a great quote. I wrote a paper on Roger Corman in college. And in one book about Corman, I found this quote as a frontispiece, which is, since film criticism is an intellectual attempt to explain a fundamentally emotional reaction, is it, it is of little value. <laughs> ah, is that Roger said that? I don't know if Roger said it. I just remember it was uh, the epigram in this book about him. Yeah. And I was like, it's true because our love for movies isn't just about the movie. It's, it's about the theater you saw it in. Sure. The person you saw it with. I mean. And the emotions that it the emotion, called up in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And in the moments washing on it. And maybe you were forced to see it multiple times. And you, it's like being forced to listen to that song you hate five times and then you love it. You know, there are movies like that. Um, you know. I remember being really disappointed the first time I saw Lebowski and then slowly loving it. I remember, you know, I mean, so there are movies that are like that. Um, I mean, there's weird movies. It's like, I don't even remember. I don't, I'm sure I don't remember right. Um, I remember I was in fifth grade and it was like the first group date I ever went on. And I sat next to Nina Goodman. I kind of had a crush on. And we went to the, um, it was another Lowe's theater. It was the 84 on Broadway. And we saw a picture and I realized only in later date, it was Alligator. Ah. And for years, I thought it was Roy Scheider in that movie. I would have told you it was Roy Scheider oh, in that funny. movie, but it's Robert Forster. <laughs> yeah. But I remembered the end of the picture where he's in the sewers and his back up against the manhole. He can't get out and he's put the dynamite down. And in my head, I'm in fifth grade, but I was in fifth grade, 81, 82, but that film came out in 1980. And I, when I saw the date, I was like, that can't be right. I was in fifth grade. And I'm like trying to figure it out in my head. I still haven't figured it out. Was it a second run theater? Was it actually fourth grade? I don't remember. But I remembered, and I didn't remember the title Alligator for years. For years, I, I thought it was titled Gator. I knew it wasn't the Burt Reynolds movie, but again, I misremembered the movie, but I remember sitting next to Nina Goodman. And I, remember, <laughs> and I remember the end of the movie. And I remember he was wearing a black shirt and he had khakis on. And for my life, me, it should be Roy Scheider, but it's Robert Forster. <laughs> and this is why movies are so great because movies aren't just, they're not clinical things that exist, even on cellulite over there. They're part of your emotional state. They're part of what you love. 
and they're part of how you define your world. And for me, I was not a reader kid. I was slightly dyslexic. I, every of my family read tons of books. I wanted to watch television. I wanted to go to the movies. I, I was one of those kids who went 17 times to the movie theater to see Star Wars, almost all at the Lozorfium or the Pittsfield capital. Um, but movies were this way in which I could project myself into the world. I could understand my world. And as I got older, the movies I liked got more complicated. I mean, you know, I fell in love with movies like All That Jazz for Elmer Gantry, which I think is a great Burt Bert Lancaster performance that most people don't even know exists. But if you're going to go Burt Lancaster, then you got to go to The Train, right. which is another great performance. <laughs> I'm one of the few people who thinks he's miscast in Sweet Soul of Success. Uh, you will argue with me about this, I know. I, he's not Walter Winchell. He's, he's no, Burt no. Lancaster. Yes, but, yeah. but God, I adore the movie. That is a difference. He's also Ed Sullivan. <clears throat> That's true. He, is, he does have the show, but, but Winchell had a show. I remember, you know, my father yeah, no, would I used talk to about watch it. My father would talk about the radio show back, listening to it, you know, uh, Greens, Mr. and Mr. America and all the chips at sea. And my father can do that. He can do the Sunday night radio lineup from well, back we when we were all kid. used to him on the Untouchables. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's all I know. And what's really interesting to me about a lot of these movies I've talked about and these influences is a lot of the movies I've talked about have basically been from about 1967 to about 1982. And that sort of darker, non-happy ending thing and the sort of more complex heroes. What's really interesting is when we got to about the late 90s, they stopped making them in movies, but they started making them in television. Yeah. You know, I was one of those people who's like, <clears throat> I watched a lot of TV, but I never wanted to make television. Television, even when television was great, like Northern Exposure, I didn't want to make television. And then I remember in 1994, first television I got outside of college, I turned it on one Friday night and saw this episode of Homicide. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most brilliant 10-minute sequence I've ever seen where it's Andre Brower goes into the box and convinces Isaiah Washington to confess oh, to a murder he didn't commit. entire season. Or entire episode, I mean. It's no, it's, it's one is act. Is that the one? The, the interrogation oh, okay. is one act. It's not the fish man. It's not the box episode. Oh, okay. All right. That was season one, episode six. <laughs> yes, I'm a nerd for homicide. Yes. <laughs> but it was this idea that um, he gets Isaiah Washington to confess to a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you can do that on television? And what I realized, only in retrospect, because I kind of stumbled into television a couple of years later, in about the early 2000s, I had a movie pitch that I pitched to somebody and they said, have you thought about it as a TV show? And I said, no, let's make it a TV show. What the heck? Can't be any harder than getting a movie made. And it turned into Brotherhood. Um, and what I realized is all those movies that I loved that I wanted to make growing up, all those movies I fell in love with, they all got being made on television. Right. And that what I'm interested in right now is the kids who grew up younger than me, we're now seeing their televisions. And I think in the people who grew up on that early 2000s television, Sopranos, Mad Men, even Sex and the City, Larry Sanders, which is the show nobody talks about. Yeah. Um, what are they going to make? Yeah. I'm really interested to see that. I think that's really cool. I think the other question is, what are they going to let them make? Well, that, that's always the question, though. I think the, <clears throat> they'll let you make what the audience will bear. I think that, yes, there was, in, in the early 2000s, there was a very lucky kismet moment, very similar to the late 60s, early 70s, where HBO didn't know what it was doing. And, Chris Albrecht, who was running the network, was, had a strong enough ego to say, you're smart, you're a good writer, go make something. And he had the good luck to make Larry Sanders and then the double shot of Sopranos and Sex and the City at the same time. Right. So it appealed across demographic groups. And he let smart writers run their own shows. And that had really only happened in television for a very brief period when uh, MTM Studios had done that with Hill Street Blues which was then followed by St. Elsewhere and a lot of other good television in the 80s. But that's where sort of that 70s cinema found a home again. Well, too, because I, I remember making the kind of glib, but I think accurate uh, assessment at the time. It was, it was, we'd just gone from a world where, because, you know, the 70s, growing up in the 70s, um, 
and it was easier for me to be a snob. I didn't have a TV growing up, but there was a whole, you know, it was the vast wasteland and, you know, TV was crap and Fred Silverman was ruining everything. That was the super train. That was the, yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and, but, but something happened where, you know, we started living in an era where Charlie's angels is a movie and taxi driver is a TV series. It just, it was just yeah. this complete reversal. It's, it's terrific. I mean, and you know, I think, I think, before I get to my, you know, stump Joe question, you know, there's one other movie I want to just sort of reference, which is the other thing that movies do is they teach you the world you want to belong to. And there's a movie that I adore. Uh, it's a Burt Reynolds movie called Hooper. <laughs> Hal Needham. And I remember rewatching it. I love this movie. It's about a stunt man, but there is such a collegial sense of fun in filmmaking. Yeah. It's one of those movies as a little kid staring at going, I want to be one of those people. I want to join that circus. That, that idea that filmmaking was this fun circus was playful. It was irreverent. And I was like, that's the circus I want to go join. I want to go be them. I mean, because I didn't, my first job not only wasn't as a writer, even as a script reader. My first job was as a grip. I started as an unpaid PA in college on a bunch of Roger Corman films. The first one being Body Chemistry 2, Voice of a Stranger. <laughs> with Martin <laughs> Downey Jr. and Gregory Harrison. Oh, God, yeah. And what was fun is I, my first day there, I showed up at 11, proceeded to work 20 hours. <laughs> I started the day painting the doors of a black sedan white so it could pretend to be a stunt car, police car. And at <laughs> two in the morning, we flipped it on Main Street in Santa Monica in front of his little studio. <laughs> and God, I was in love. And within six weeks, they had hired me as a grip because I was that annoying person who wanted to know what everything did. Six weeks? What took you so long? I don't know. I was just <laughs> they didn't want to pay me, slow, but I made $500 a week for two weeks. <laughs> and I'd PA'd on some stuff. And... But being a grip on that and Liars Club and God, uh, was one other one, which God, I'm, uh, I'll kick myself because I can't remember the title. Um, but being a grip on a crew, being one of the guys was one of the funnest experiences I have. And also being a showrunner was the most helpful thing because I understood what it was to be a craftsman, oh, yeah. to be on a set, to be that guy who's bored because the director doesn't know what they want. Because the AD has scheduled the day wrong. We did a 20-hour day on the 3rd of July where they brought in the baby at 2 a.m. <laughs> I mean, this was classic Corman filmmaking. It was just horrible. <laughs> we were so bored because they were taking so long between setups that we took um, C-stands. We took the gobo arm off the C-stand, which is a hollow metal tube, took nails, made little cones out of masking tape on the end, and literally were making blowguns and firing them at clothespins <laughs> called C-47s across the lot. <laughs> And you're really fucking accurate with a, a rifled, you know, three foot C gobo arms uh, blowgun. And the guy who's Roger's lawyer comes out and is doing it with us till like the AD comes out and goes, I don't think for insurance purposes you should do that. And the lawyer goes, oh, yes, yes, yes. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> there, but, there's a, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I read it I remember when I was flying back east to, to direct my little horror film. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine gave it to me. There's a book that's a collection of interviews with directors talking about directing their first film. The Coen brothers are in it. You know, the, the, this, it, and, and, you know, there's 20, 25 people in there. And it was really interesting because, yeah, you know, like you, I came up, you know, I spent years working crew and, and you could just draw a line down the, you know, every director who talked about just being absolutely petrified the first time they walked on their set. It was like, that was their first job on a movie or maybe yeah. they'd been writers or something. And then there were people who come up as crew who had all kinds of other, you know, sort of yeah. neurotic stories. But yeah, there's, it's, it's so, I don't know. Do people listen to this to get tips on how to like, you want to make movies work on one at least as anything as a PA as a you know go 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 work on craft service do something but just it's the most incredibly valuable experience well, I think the thing that happens <laughs> if you understand the crew and you understand their motivations is as a showrunner you know I got to sit in the big chair 
I walked on set, I knew what everybody did and I know who worked hard and I knew how to respect them and respect right. what they did. And so as a result, you know, for the first season of Brotherhood, I was just, you know, I was just a showrunner producer. And when I finally directed an episode, it was the first time I'd actually directed a real non-student film. By that time, I had their respect to the point that they ran through walls for me because they knew that I respected what they did. Right. I treated their effort, which look, they're not above the line. They don't get a bonus. They, they don't get a pay raise for good work. And they want to be interested. Right. They want to do interesting work. You tell a grip okay, I need to hang a camera somehow from that chandelier. They'll come up with the most creative way. That excites them. Yeah. You know, and so that idea of when you're a director, 150 people show up on set to make you look good and therefore love them, respect them, be kind. You can be demanding, but always say please and thank you. Always be polite and really understand that they're better at their job than you are at their job. So put them in a position where how do we solve the problem? And they will love solving the problem. And that's what's, that's, you know, again, it was incredibly valuable. And, and, you know, again, I could go on and on about the experience of working for Roger. And this wasn't even heyday, Roger. This was, you know, late eighties, early nineties. We were making, you know, 18 day straight to video things that didn't even end up in your video store and probably ended up, you know, in a video store in Romania where he <laughs> then moved all his films and started shooting them there. Um, <laughs> but it was great. And circling full back though, Cooper is one of those movies that made me as a kid love the idea of being part of a film crew. Yeah. And I don't think Burt, it's my favorite Burt Reynolds movie. Hal Needham doesn't get enough credit as being a really fun director. I mean, he did the Smoking the Man at movies we all laugh at. Um, but that movie in particular, Robert Klein plays such a good asshole in that movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's just, again, I was, again, the age I saw it in, the way I saw it. I think I saw that in Pittsfield. I don't remember which theater. I'm sorry. Um, Blame <laughs> it. Ah. Uh, but it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's one of those movies I love. Um, if I can just do one last proselytizing movie sure, experience before sure. we try to stump Joe. Um, there's a, I left this out of my uh, proselytizing sections. There's a director who, because he died very young, we don't think about a lot. A guy named Colin Higgins, mm. who... When I was, I think, eight, uh, we went to Pittsfield. We missed the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then we sat through the movie. And it was so good, we sat through a second show because we wanted to see the first 10 minutes. It was a movie called Foul Play. This is Foul Play. And this is Foul Play. Foul Play, a new comedy thriller starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase in his very first motion picture. When, when you first saw me, what did you think? I thought you were a bore. I'm kind of a nice guy, and you're really a very lovely girl with or without your cleavage. And Collie, what do you say? Would you like to take a shower? Uh, Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase, right off his uh, one season on Saturday Night Live. Right, and it is big. It's both funny, but it's also built as a thriller. Yeah. It's built as a thriller and then played as a comedy. And it is, if you ever want to sort of see somebody in the 70s still mocking the 70s hugely and a great supporting performance in Dudley Moore, go watch Foul Play. It's the timing, the tone. It's a really great balance of tone. It's got a great sequence at the end with a car. It's the bullet car chase set to the Mikado. It is just such a joyously fun, delicious movie and so many 70s tropes in it. And it was still the 70s and we were already making fun of the 70s in the middle of the 70s. <laughs> and it was great. And I just remember, you know, the second time through it, seeing the first 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, oh. But I had so fallen in love with the experience. We saw that in the hotel in the basement 
of the Hilton in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, and the other movie he did was 95, which again, Direct. directed. The movie directed, yes. You're, and, you're leaving out the masterpiece that he wrote, of course, which. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you do it. Go ahead. I, no, I'm not. I honestly. Oh, he wrote Harold and Maude. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 I would, I would hold that. Yeah. And I think, uh, but nine to five again, was, you know, it was, it was such a, such great casting, such great chemistry. <clears throat> and it's, he's one of those directors. He died very young. He died, uh, I think in the mid eighties. Um, we forgot about him. And he's somebody who I think would have gone on to do a bunch more. Mm-hmm. Movies. And so if you can look up Colin Higgins, go look at his, his, uh, you know, his IMDb, watch those movies. He was really a great one who kind of has been lost. And so again, my love as of those, they, as they say, dying is a bad career move. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I love those movies, and so coming I, on Jimmy the podcast, Dean just scored a new film, though. I heard that's true. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it's, it's not going to be directed by William Wellman, <laughs> the director you can't hologram. Yes, um, but anyway, any of the movies I've mentioned, I love these. They are personal to me. I've got about ten more. I'm not even going to go well, into. Well, remember, we have uh, our a place where people can go. Oh, yes, uh, Joe, do you want to um, I can't remember the name. It's Fox. Oh, Letterboxd. Letterboxd. If you yes, go to Letterboxd. They can see we do a whole list every I think episode. it's also on the Trails from Hell website. But there's That's a whole right. list of all the things that are talked about and the links that take you to where you can yes. read about them or oh, get them. That's or whatever. awesome. Yes. So also include Night at the Opera, In-Laws, Olzana's Raid. <laughs> uh, what else do I got? The Seven Ups, Wolfen. Uh, anyway, but... Okay. Wolfen. I will give it. Well, the, the, the Grimy second, New York. Grimy New York. Second Albert time Finney. he's mentioned Wolfen. It's, uh, uh, that's, it's, it, yes. it's great South Bronx stuff, the rubble. So, all well, yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So there's this movie I saw when I, I, again, I was probably somewhere between about 78 and 82, I would bet. Um, you look much younger. Uh, and I'm, I'm 49. Um, oh, said he was 82. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere between those couple of years, it was a cop movie. Uh, I experienced it as a thriller. It may have been slightly comedic. In my brain, it was Clint Eastwood. It might have been George Siegel. <laughs> Um, well, there, was, <laughs> there was a difference. I know. It might have been Robert Forster. <laughs> He's hey. the actor whose name I, I keep putting people in his parts. Charles and Whoopi Goldberg. It's a cop, and he's got, the, he's got his arm in a cast for the whole movie. Oh. And he oh. keeps, he solves the crime in the end, and there's this, the last scene is he's gotten the cast off, and there's this kid who's been annoying him all movie, and the kid has a skateboard, and in the last scene, it's, it's a shot up a hill, and he steps on the skateboard and breaks and his wrist And he breaks again. his wrist again. Yes. Is it George Siegel? Is it Robert Forster? It ain't sounds like George Siegel. Oh, it sounds on. like George Siegel. It sounds like a George Siegel movie. Yes. And George Siegel is another one of those lost actors who made so many great movies. Fun with Dick around. and Jane, and, you know, and California Splits. And he's, again, he's an actor we don't remember was a star. He's kind of that Ellie. He's Elliot Gould without the credits somehow. Because he didn't no, have a long he goodbye. He an awful lot of good movies. Yeah. Joe, you don't. I. What is George Siegel cop movie, I think. It's, it's, it's not the, George Siegel. I'm sure. Is it Forster? Is it listening. Forster? It could no, be Forster. It doesn't sound like a Bob Forster movie. It doesn't sound like Bob Forster. It's something. It is. There is a comedic quality to yes. it. Yes. Oh no! Wait. No. Is it? Is it? Uh, it's not the big fix. I I have it's no idea. Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, it's okay. Richard Dreyfus. So the big fix. That's exactly how the big fix ends. He's a lover. You, know, you made one little mistake with me. What? Breaking up. <laughs> He's a kidder. <laughs> Where did you get this guy? Hello. Daddy, will you sing this a song? He's a father. I've broken the cables. He's a private eye. And he's got style. Richard Dreyfus in The Big Fix. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. And he 
slips on a skateboard and, drives. Skate, and okay i now have to go watch the big fix uh it's actually pretty fun um i i yeah he plays a sort of ex-hippie uh, uh detective oh, thank goodness. now i know it's the, the big fix wow i can't believe yeah i have been wondering about that for years led us with those other titles those other names like i said <sighs> these things get mixed up in my brain because well, the one young. the one as long as we're doing that and, and joe you, you now you owe us one since, since see if only richard dreyfus had made medium cool instead of <laughs> How much better it would. <laughs> what there, there's a film I saw as a child, and I just have vague. Again, it's weird. I remember the, the emotional ride of it, but just purely the emotional ride of it. But the last scene, it was it was a uh, it was a uh, an independent um, sort of black cinema. It, it would be in a black exploitation book today. It was not. It was sort of a I think a sort of searing family drama from the early seventies, and and the end of the movie is a child, uh, the black kid who's the lead of the film. Who's, who's, and it's not Lawrence Fishburne. It's, it's not, not young blood. It's, is it young? No, it's, it's younger than that. He's a, he's like 10 or 11 and he runs across the street and his father, or perhaps his father figure is driving a car and the movie ends with squealing brakes as the kid looks up and you realize he's about to, the kid, the guy in the car is about to hit the kid. Nothing looks like Joe Dante. He oh, cut his I, hair. He cut his hair. Oh my God, you're right. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty vague. Uh, um, yeah, vague I know. I just remember the ending of it. Um, uh, I was just, I was looking to see if we could find Dan Waters to, to that help would, you out. But then I. You've solved that. it. I, I am very I, grateful. I will have to go now and track down the big fix and watch it's it. not hard to find. It just came out on Blu-ray. There you go. Um, uh, yes. Well, and if anybody out there knows my movie, please text it out or tweet it at us or something, but, um, is it in color? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's in color. I'm sure it's in color. Um, wow. Well, Blake, uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was, that was a, that was a journey, man. Well, I, there, again, they're movies I irrationally love. Sure. I hope you love them too. We love all movies. Around. We, <laughs> <laughs> we love all. Can I plug a movie I thoroughly enjoyed irrationally? Just speaking of. Uh, Please. I, I don't often. You don't find. I don't find myself in this place ever. Last Friday night, my wife and I were, uh, Nancy, were watching uh, movies and sort of wrap things up. But it was a little early, but it was like we were just sort of, we were both wiped and wanted to watch something, but didn't watch anything that would be challenging and we want to, want to watch something loud and stupid and dopey and i suddenly remember this thing had just dropped on netflix and and we watched i will i will say we it's it's the bayest thing he's ever done we watched six underground on netflix and and i am not the giant michael bay fan as you might imagine it's delirious it's it's so much fun i i, I couldn't believe it and 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 i refuse to believe in guilty pleasures but if did that I did, go directly to netflix me a 200 million dollar netflix movie it's no theater <laughs> no theater. Uh, well they played i think in westwood for a week or so but uh that doesn't count <laughs> uh and i i was and ryan reynolds is the lead who i think is the perfect michael bailey because he knows exactly what's going on in a way that perhaps some of his other leading men don't seem to quite get it but um yeah sorry not to not to hijack your list of wonderful films with a, with a michael bay film but i have not seen it it's um, it's you might as someone who i you know i feel we are in the same boat about many things i, I would say get, give it a shot yes <laughs> okay i will give it a shot and i will track down the big fix and i've just had a blast and oh yeah go see the muppet movie too the original one from 78 yes I think it was, it's 
It's the first movie I saw with my wife together. I brought it to like our date. I spent the night. Ah, wow, that's a recommendation. Oh, Muppets always get you late. Man. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.